each evening at this time of the day, uh, which would be the evening. <laughs> each evening uh, in the schedule, we have something called a Dharma talk. And it's where we get a chance to talk about the tradition and give some framing for the practices that we're doing here. And it's possible that if you've, this is your first retreat, there could be a lot of questions like, uh, exactly why are we doing this? And if you've come for many times, it might also occur to you, why are we doing this? And I might be able to uh, give some context for why we would put this much time into feeling our body sensations when breathing, listening to simple sounds, and the impact this has on our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. During this uh, talk, when we give these talks, it would be helpful if you didn't um, slowly go into story mode and lean back and then go horizontal, then curl up and fall asleep. (laughs) And so if you can stay sitting, um, I know your bodies are probably tired, but uh, to stay upright, it's helpful with attention so you don't go into too much of passive mode. And if you might uh, practice in a way that you're listening from within your body, Rather than having your attention way out here, you can practice actually resting as you have been all day in your bodies and then receiving some some words and some concepts about this tradition. So see if you can practice that. And if you forget, just when you can remember, oh yeah, I'm way out there. Let me see if I can come back and listen and be embodied while I do that. I wanted to give a little broader context um, for what we're doing here. And I'd like to start with a story. Um, In uh, 1988, I was a sophomore in college, and one of my best friends had walked across the United States uh, protesting nuclear testing. Um, I was so impressed that he had done that. And then he said, well, there's this rally to, against nuclear testing in uh, Nevada State. And so I'm going down there for spring break and we come and I was like, oh, that's amazing. I'd like to spend time with you and just learn more about what it means to be such a dedicated peace activist that you would do what, you know, things you've done and to meet some of the friends that you've made. So I went down there and I really had no context for what I was getting involved in, but there was a 10-day uh, protest outside the main gates going into the Nevada nuclear test site. And people were uh, lying down the road to block the buses going in to see if they could disrupt the nuclear testing that was happening. Um, not many people know that over 900 nuclear bombs have been exploded um, in Nevada, uh, many overground and then many, many underground. And I didn't know that. So when I got down there, there was this huge education about all this nuclear testing that had happened. And it happened on native Shoshone land. And so there was treaty violations and there was radiation poisoning of all the local uh, natives. Um, and there's a whole consciousness behind testing nuclear weapons and wanting to be a dominant power on the globe and thinking, you know, we're the best country in the world. and not caring for the land, not caring for the native people, not caring for people living rurally uh, downwind of where the testing had happened. So just this whole mind state around the nuclear testing and then seeing people who'd been uh, 
living for decades in really beautiful, nonviolent, uh, Gandhian, uh, Kingian, um, uh, peaceful nonviolence, and putting their lives on the line, putting their bodies on the line. And I'd seen it on TV, but I'd never actually met real peace activists like this. And to look in their eyes and to see some of them were tough and hardened and cynical, but driven. And you just feel, it's like, whoa, you're a peace activist, but you're, a, you're intense to be around. <laughs> but their level of commitment, but then there are these peace activists, and the ones that really impacted me uh, had peace all the way through them. They had peace all the way into their eyes and their hearts and their bodies and the way that they walked and talked. I just never met people like that. And to see how much they embodied uh, the very orientation we were trying to turn towards as to being uh, courageous and not brewing hatred and opposition that would lead to the feeling that you need nuclear weapons and be on the precipice of a nuclear war. That was really big uh, when we were growing up. It's, uh, it sort of backed off and now it's reemerged and it's one of those threats out there. But at the time, it was a really big concern that we were just always hours away from nuclear explosions going off. So I got really taken up by this nonviolence. And um, in order to do nonviolent protesting, you need a lot of training because the habit is to get triggered and then get angry, or the habit is to think in oppositional ways. And so a big part of the protest was actually living in this 5,000-person uh, tent city on the other side, and there's just constant workshops going on about looking into the roots of hatred, the roots of violence, um, ways that we were living in violent thought structures and didn't know it. Um, that uh, I did my first deeply intense uh, anti-racist work and anti-sexist work and class structure analysis and what the consensus looked like. And so there's a lot of training. And I thought, oh my God, this is really going to work. This is so beautiful. And yet when I went through the process of, doing, of participating in the protests, I would intend to be peaceful. But by the time the guards came up and I was arrested, I was really fighting back a lot of fear and a lot of judgment. And I was trying so hard to be peaceful, but I had to put in that much effort because instinctually inside there was frustration there was doubt and there was idealism that was shaking me and so i realized i had a lot of work to do to become actually nonviolent. and so i had the dedication i knew where i wanted my life to go i knew where i wanted my heart to go how i wanted to be on the planet but i had no idea how to actually transform my heart I went to all these workshops and they were very good at education and framing things, but they weren't really good at actually transforming hearts so they could actually let go of their uh, views that led to all this uh, violence and division. And you could see it in some of the peace activists where they would be on the stage in order to like rev up the crowd. They would just talk about how those people make nuclear weapons and those people are insane and we've got to stop those people. And that whole framing of like this other that are bad people that do bad things and we have the good. And somebody else would come and was like, that's not how you stop violence. 
And so there's this beautiful urge for peace, this beautiful urge to be courageous. But there was such mixed um, qualities uh, and it felt like we were struggling within ourselves how to be peaceful. But this pinnacle moment happened and some of you have heard this story before, but I saw two elderly Quaker women get arrested and it, it was one of the more it was one of the more defining moments in my life when I saw these two women that must have been in their seventies and their their camp was next to our camp, so I got to see them uh, when they weren't being arrested and they were often singing songs by a campfire and it's like wow, they're so peaceful. And then when they went to get arrested, uh, they walked up to the gate where people were getting arrested and they stood there and this one guard kind of waved to them and walked over and the guard said something. I was like, oh, you guys, it's been so long since I've seen you. And it's like, oh, you're going to arrest us today. That's great. You know, we we're looking forward to seeing you. And how is your family? Well, how is your family? And then he would put the cuffs on them and they would walk and they had this sort of like old friends meeting. And I thought, wow, that's it. That's it. They, there is no war between those people. They're on different sides and they've learned to care for each other. And that's what the whole sort of peace movement was trying to get to is how do you actually have a heart of that radiant peace? And I got to see their authentic love of this guard, but I also got to see them in their camp and how they authentically loved everybody. And so I knew it was possible. I knew human hearts could be beautifully radiant. And I met many spiritual activists in the desert. Um, and <clears throat> the Native American elders and these kick-ass Catholic nuns and these uh, indigenous elders from around the world and all these different activists, some of them just had this, uh, this sun rise in their heart and beam out their eyes. And I thought, yeah, I would love to head in that direction. I've tasted the potential of maybe one day having that, but I have so much conflict inside. And I just keep doing workshops, I guess, until I finally transform. And a year later, I went on my first meditation retreat and again, didn't know much about it and kind of was shocked when I first got to it that it was as hard as it was. And the people up front were like, someone yada yada breath, yada yada, feel your body, yada yada yada. And I was like, okay, whatever, it's a little bit redundant, but I'll do it. But secretly I thought, wow, I've never had this much time to think before. So I'll check in with this breath, but it's a little bit mundane. What I really want to do is finally organize my thoughts. So I'd work on these speeches I wanted to give my parents, and I'd work on the way that I would get arrested one day, and what I would say to the guard, and, and what like cute thing would I say that would show them that I really cared about his kids, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'd just like, pretend it and get it organized. And then the caffeine would wear off, and I'd be a little tired after lunch, and I was like, ah, oh, I'm not feeling it like I did an hour ago. I gotta, gotta better rehearse it. I should write this stuff down. Like, how do I hold on to this script I want to live by? And then it felt like, ah, it's all fading. It doesn't make any sense anymore. I'll never get there. And then another moment would open, and I was like, oh, here it is again. God, I really gotta write this stuff down. It's so good. And I kind of polished, like, no, no, that was totally not how to do it. I'm going to do it this way, and I'm going to give this speech to my parents. I'm going to transfer my friends this way. I'm going to, like, live in a little shack and beg for my food, and it's all going to work out, and it's all going to be solar-powered and straw-built houses and totally beautiful. And then it would crumble again. I was like, God, I cannot get my mind 
to stay where I wanted to, but every now and then it heads in the right direction. And the teacher's like, yada, yada, breath, yada, yada, footsteps, yada, 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 taste your actual food, yada, yada, live in the moment. And I was like, they go on and on about that. But I just got my work to like straighten out my head. And at the time, I was doing a lot of internal uh, struggle with my parents about um, trying to find myself uh, with all their input. And it's just a real kind of, um, I don't know, I was 21 at the time. I was fighting this fight. And it was day four, and I remember it was day four because it was all another moment that just totally turned. And the teachers went, yada, yada, breath, yada, yada, feel your steps, yada, yada, taste your food, yada, yada. And then this guy just said to the entire audience, uh, the thought of your parents is not your parents. Yada, yada, breath, yada, yada, taste your food, yada, yada. And I was like, the thought of my parents is not my parents. The thought of my parents is not my actual parents. Like that makes intellectual sense, but it just sort of like dropped all the way down. I thought, my God, I've been living as if every thought in my head is an actual reality. And I'm trying to straighten out these things. But what you can really do is just pop it like a soap bubble. And that's, with Law's help, giving a good demonstration, your mind just produces, produces thoughts. <laughs> and if you have to chase everyone, get them all organized, you have to sort them out, and the mind keeps on producing thoughts, and you're in there. And finally, you get a good stream, and then like the wind blows a different direction, and you're still there, being obsessed with thoughts. And what this practice showed me on that turning moment was like you actually, these are little realities if you get inside them. If you get inside them, they're as real as anything you believe. But a moment later, that bubble pops. And rather than fighting all these thoughts to organize them, I could just pop them like soap bubbles. And the entire reality would pop when I popped it. So this old argument would arise with my dad and I would be working on the best speech in case we ever got into that argument again, exactly what I would say and got the script all ready. And I was like, well, let me just try this. I was like, wow, that thing doesn't even exist. I don't actually have to keep all these speeches nearby and rehearse them and get them ready to apply at the right time. I can actually just keep popping these soap bubbles and in doing that, the whole world that they were trying to create popped in that moment. So that's some of what I want to talk about tonight. And it's a huge part of how we are confused in daily life. And what coming on retreat starts to do is getting perspective on what it means to have an alive, active human mind with its ability to conceive of the past and conceive of the future and to start thinking about the present and what it's like to get lost on that level but feel like it's really real. And as long as you think that it's real, it feels real to you. And what it was, I can think back to myself and thinking again, I can create a soap bubble of myself. And I remember when my thoughts felt like realities and therefore I would live in them. And one of the problems of that 
is that thoughts are very conditional. So depending on the emotions you have and depending on your blood sugar and depending on whether it's winter or whether you are an evening person or morning person, all these things are constantly changing and with it goes the sloshing of thoughts. Yet if you don't know that your thoughts are just mental activity, you live with each thought that you believe in. There's a story uh, in, that has come in many different ways, but it's similar about an artist who gets incredibly good at their ability to paint and then falls in love with drawing uh, tigers and dragons and incredible artistry. And one time this beautiful picture of a tiger comes out and they look at it and they put their brush down they look up again and they die of a heart attack because they finally painted something so amazingly realistic that they shocked themselves to death. We are doing this all the time. Our thoughts are taking in sense data. We take in color through the eye, vibrations through the ear, aromas through the nose, taste through the tongue. We have all these different sense organs, in, uh, sense neurons inside our bodies and in our skin. And that's how we relate to the world. So it comes in as sense data, it gets perceived, and then we build a complex map and then we live as if that map that we just built is real. And our minds are so good at that, that we believe it. Like if you had, if you had a crack, like whenever you crack your uh, cell phone cover, you can tell you, can, you have a cell phone, you can't get that mesmerized by the image because it's got a crack right down the center. But our minds are so good at painting pictures and we're very enchanted by them. So much so that we come to a retreat like this and the teachers say yada yada feel your breath yada yada feel your steps yada yada taste your food over and over and over but a lot of time that we spent is actually living with these old habits of being very drawn and mesmerized by the images that our minds create and then living into those dramas as if they're real and then trying to sort them out as if they're real it's not that they're completely unreal because we actually have a pretty good way of mapping on, but you have to know, you have to be able to see that your mind is creating a story and what stories it's creating. And if you don't have that perspective, if your mind's in a fearful mood, it will create a fearful world. And through that filter, you start interpreting the world. But if you don't know you have a fear filter on, it looks to you like the world is full of unsafe things and they're coming at you and that's your responsibility. That may be accurate, but most of the time it's not accurate. Most of our fears are actually fear habits arising. We get enchanted by that story and we live as if it's true. And then we try to solve it from within the bubble. And every time you come back to your breath, every time you come back to your steps, every time you actually taste your food, every time you come back, you're popping the bubble, you're popping the thought train that you're mesmerized by. And it causes a radical transformation. It doesn't seem that radical in the moment, you have a wandering thought, you come back and feel a fairly average breath, you have a wandering thought, come back, same breath, a little bit different maybe. 
But that whole time you're actually practicing a very deep revolutionary act of not just going with wherever your mind wants to wander as if it's real. So we have these sense organs, our eyes, our ears, our skin, our nose, our tongue. And we take in data, we take in color, we take in sounds. So one part of our mindfulness practice is to steer your attention not to the story around what you're seeing, which is the habit, but to go actually when you're looking out your eye, take in the color and try not to add a story to it. Or if your mind does add story to it, just say, yeah, that's mind adding story. But right in the moment, there's color coming through my eye. There's a lot of white in the paint, there's brown in the wood, there's some black around these speakers. There's colors of the clothing we're wearing. These are the colors coming through the eye. And your mind perceives, that's the first layer of interpretation. This is a human, this is clothing, that's a statue, that's a wall, that's a light. First layer, you're adding context. But then we build context on top of that. And that's where things can get really awry. We build, very quickly, we build complex stories. And the type of story that we build is only as good as the heart we have in that moment plus our previous training. So by no deep fault of our own, we've all internalized dominant culture interpretations of what it means to be human. And through that dominant culture, it's not terribly wise. It has some actually deep flaws in how dominant culture interprets the world, this dominant American culture which is not even just one thing, it's many things, but by the time you grow up and you're a young adult, you've been so impressed upon culture that you walk into a room or you walk anywhere and your mind is going from a visual experience to the first layer of identifying this is a human, this is a lamppost, that's a car. But then it starts to build context really fast. And if you don't track this, this is where all the social confusion comes in. So in having the mind add a racist devaluation is an act of perception. And we all do it because the dominant culture has gotten into our mode of perception. So we're all working against that. We're all fighting to not let our minds do unconscious habit, which has all these biases in it. And the biases are oppressive. They're meant to uh, assert privilege and power to a certain group at the cost of another. And most of us don't have that value, but our minds still do it. And that's what was happening in these workshops in the desert. People were articulating, this is what's happening. There's dominant culture memes, we've internalized them. If you're not conscious of what's happening, your mind will uh, interpret the world through these lenses. And then you get these outcomes and you're not even aware of the process. 
So each one of these workshops was trying to get us more aware. That's about as much as a workshop could do, is trying to point you to look at this. What this meditation practice does, is it accelerates that by 10,000, where you get to really train for days upon end, not buying into the complexification that your mind wants to do, that it habitually wants to do. Or you can watch it go through that complex process. So you're sitting here, breathing, as you normally do, and you can watch it over and over and over. It actually gets fascinating where you're like, okay, what's it gonna do next? I'm just breathing, and your sensations are the first level of experience in your body. Right now, this shirt's a little heavy, it's a little warm in here, so I feel a lot of warmth wherever this shirt is touching my body. That warmth is a tangible experience. That's not already rendered by perception. That's just warmth felt, that's my nerves firing. That goes into a perception. My arm is cool, my body is warm. Then I start telling a story. Maybe I'll be too warm. Maybe I'll ask somebody to secretly turn down the temperature because I'm afraid I'm gonna get too hot during the talk. What if that were to happen? That'd be kind of embarrassing. What if I just start sweating and everybody sees me and I'm just covered in sweat? So now I'm actually telling a complex story, but I'm not aware when I went from a real experience to going up into a complex story. Every time your mind leaves your breath, you've done that. There's been some type of access to your tangible experience, some layer of story got told, but we weren't totally aware that that was happening. But if you watch, you can see it every time. You're sitting here, I just had it with these birds. Sitting here, I hear squawks. My mind interprets bird. But I saw a blackbird. Now, I'm, I, that, by that sound, I think it's a crow, but already my mind is sure it's a crow. It saw it flying. So I'm sure that's a crow, because I just saw it in my mind. So my mind starts telling a story. Next thing I know, I'm picturing this bird, wondering where it's nesting, how do crows live here, are they, in, you know, are they mean to the other birds around here, and I kind of like crows, I hear they're kind of intelligent, or if I could befriend one, that'd be kind of cool, every time I came to she, I could check in with my crow friend. And so I'm sitting here, and I hear a sound, and that's legit. Identify the crow, that may or may not be true. But then my mind starts taking this storyline, and the next thing I know, I haven't even felt my breath, I haven't been present, I haven't been conscious in minutes, maybe hours. Before I started doing this practice, I would live months that were not conscious. Months that were just in a waterfall of thought. And there was a world out there I couldn't touch because the thoughts were too thick. The interpretations were too thick. I would see people, but I would judge them. And I couldn't even see my friends because the layers of judgment and interpretation were so clouded, I could hardly hear what my friends were saying. And my own Self I couldn't know because my own judgments and perceptions of myself were so dense and complicated. So this is a revolutionary act to come back and get your attention on the simple level, watch your mind make the first level of interpretation, say thanks, don't need that level, I'm just sitting here breathing. I'm gonna go back to the layer of sensation I'm actually going to feel what it's like to breathe in. Which means you're returning back to real tangible experience, what it feels like as you breathe. 
then your mind interprets that, wants to tell a story, and it's like, yeah, we're not doing story time right now. I do story time my entire life. I'm actually training on making direct contact with the world, inside and out. And this is what the practice of mindfulness is. You'll hear this word, mindfulness. Mindfulness, <clears throat> I used this example in a group earlier, and it's a little, it definitely is outdated, but I don't know how to get there otherwise, so follow along. If you've ever handled a vinyl record, <laughs> having a sharp needle was like everything about getting good music out of a vinyl record. And I'm not sure if this is like how generationally lost I am at this point with you all, but... So I used to have a, violent, a, a sharp needle and would wear down at a time. You had to get a new sharp needle and go to a record store and get a new needle. And you put a penny on top of the lever so it would press down so the needle would make really good contact with what was right below it. This is what mindfulness is. You're trying to get the needle of awareness right on the experience and not hover around it, thinking about it, observing it, comparing it to some other time, but can you rest the needle of your awareness right in a stream of body sensations connected with breathing? Can you rest the needle of your awareness right in the stream of what it's like to chew on salad? Can you rest the stream of your awareness right in the sound of a bird, but not start going off in the direction of thinking about it? Sharpening that needle and getting it right into the groove makes the best music out of old records. And you can do the same thing with lasers because that's how they work, but it's just not as visually uh, compelling. But it might be for you all because I'm not sure how much you've worked with vinyl records and needles and whatnot. But you're going to have to work with that image because that's what I'm offering you. <laughs> <laughs> and then come up with your own way to figure it out. But So <clears throat> we go on and on about bringing your attention back and feeling a breath and being more intimate with your breath. And it's like, what more is there to feel? I felt a breath. And the next 2,000 were really similar. So I, I don't see what I'm missing here. If we were using the neuroscience mapping, our brains look like how we've used them. They're not hardwired. When I bought my uh, computer a couple of years ago, all the atoms are roughly exactly where they were. All the circuits, they haven't gotten bigger or lesser. But our brains actually change as we use them. The synapses grow stronger, ones we're not using grow weaker. So if you preference your body sensations, you actually build capacity to feel inside your body. And you diminish the pathways that get so enamored with endless thought. And having done this practice now since uh, 1989. Thoughts are interesting, but they're really not that amazing. I've had a lot of them, and a lot of them are repetitive. A lot of them are attempting to be helpful, but have, have nothing to do with actual reality. They're just speculation of a brain firing and being all chemically juicy and producing a lot of stuff, but it's often repetitive and it often is not tangibly useful but we're mesmerized by it. But living in your body will transform your sense of happiness. Living in your body, if you've ignored your body, the first deepening of that intimacy 
your body's got some complaints. And most of us have lived in a way that we haven't attended our body as intimately. So the first day on the retreat, it's not the retreat that's difficult, it's you're running into all your habits. You're running into habits of your mind, just pinballing all over. Do you guys play pinball anymore? (laughs) Pinballing all over the place, just out of random thoughts, just firing and, and inspiring each other and inspiring each other. That's been dominant. Coming into your body, we often feel stress patterns that we've held unconsciously. And so the first day of the retreat, a lot of people, their bodies ache. And you think it's because you're sitting still and that's why your body's aching. There's a little truth to that. You have to do build a little bit of muscles to hold your posture, you stretch out a few joints. But mostly what's uncomfortable in your body is the storage of unconscious stress. And most of what your body's been claiming, complaining about is not the retreat, is not the sitting. It's actually showing you how much stress it's been holding unconsciously so you could have a mentally dominant life. Luckily, it doesn't complain forever. The body actually doesn't hold a lot of resentment. It's holding pain, it's letting you know, but it also, as you feel it, as you breathe with it, you tend to clear layer by layer. So the body's pretty good about that. If you're willing to listen to it, breathe along with its discomforts, it doesn't really want to hold a big grudge. It doesn't want to hold the stress. So these stress patterns start showing up. You can feel it in your neck, because a lot of us live with hunched shoulders, live with uh, that bent forward with little horns growing out. Anybody see that, that newscast? I don't everybody has little horns because they're bending their neck forward. Turns out not to be true. But we held, we hold our bodies in a certain way. Our bodies have to take on that shape. And then we come to sit upright and our muscles have to stretch. They have to let go of stress. As you let go of somaticized stress, you let, also end up letting go of the unconscious pattern in your mind. If you let go of the unconscious pattern in your mind by making it conscious, you end up letting go of the stress in your body. And there's a beautiful partnership in that. But you will go through waves of discomfort. There's this old uh, story uh, from Europe called the, the Princess and the Pea. And I thought that my, my take on that is that she was like a, a meditator way ahead of her time and the whole story was that she was so mindfully present that you could lay out all these uh, hardened peas and stack it with uh, 21 mattresses and she could count the peas, 21 mattresses down. But she had to train for that. I mean, you just start with one, first you start lying on peas and you count them and then you put like a little uh, cloth and you build your way up so you can feel down. But it's a statement of how uh, present she was that she could actually feel down that level. That mythology mirrors onto what it's like to be on meditation retreat, where day by day you feel a little deeper. And as you feel a little deeper, you often feel a stress pattern. You breathe along with it because what else are you going to do? And then by breathing along with it, you haven't resisted it. It tends to let go and open up. And then you have what you will call a good sit. And a good sit is that time after the stress 
where you're feeling like, ah, oh, my body's open, I can breathe, I can finally think the thoughts I've always wanted to think, I'm the person I finally wanted to be, this is a good sit. But you only have access to that good sit because in the previous sits you were breathing and being present and not running away from old habits. Here's a thing you can track. About the first day, your mind will wander a lot and you'll wake up and you really won't know where you've been. You'll just like, oh my God. And you'll maybe remember the last section of thinking, but you won't remember the whole journey. That You were that unconscious. Then you start being conscious enough that your mind wanders and you start to know where you've been. So you'll start seeing that. Maybe you start seeing that today. And it's not like an escalator totally up, but it comes in waves, it gets stronger. You can actually see your mind going from one thought realm to another. Being able to see your mind in motion, the thought occurs to you sooner. I actually don't want to be thinking this thought. This thought is not where I want my attention to be. I'm actually learning to be embodied. So then you start uh, challenging them earlier. You don't wander as long. And the next stage is where you're with your breath and you feel the inclination to want to follow a thought and you're like, yeah, we're not heading there. So just as your mind starts to be drifted away, like, yeah, I already know globally, I don't want to be thinking now. There's something different happening. There's something else I'm exploring here than just following another thought. And then you'll have moments where being present may be the most peaceful thing you've ever experienced. And that starts to show you another type of contentment. Not one where you're organizing your thoughts, planning out your future, living in that choppy, dicey world, but where you're actually resting in being, just being and breathing, just being and walking, just being and taking in trees and sky, this level of uh, perceiving and being at your senses can fill you with contentment. And we don't know that. We kind of hope that that would be true, but if it were true and we believed it more, we'd practice it more. And a lot of us don't think that there's a tremendous amount of well-being that could come from just breathing or feeling your heartbeat or feeling what it's like to take a step. As you learn to not preference your thinking mind and not try to problem solve everything through thinking and conceiving of it, you start to have faith that letting go of this complex thought might be part of the solution rather than stepping into it and trying to solve it from within it. I'm going to let go of these complexities. And this is where we get to a layer that I wanted to bring up. And it's what it means to have a human heart. A human heart has a way of being has a way of connection, has a a homegrown well-being inside of it 
And it has to be somewhat relaxed for that to be a subjectively contacted experience, that your own body, your own heart, is the source of the greatest well-being you'll ever know. But if you start chasing your thoughts, it makes the experience of your heart choppy. And then when you access your heart, what you feel is agitation, and what you feel is inflammation. And then you resent the people who make your mind even choppier, so you try to change their behavior because they're agitating your heart. Over these days, as we let go of thinking and trying to problem solve through the thinking mind, and we start coming into simple being, simple feeling, simple seeing, simple hearing, the heart itself begins to calm down. As the heart begins to calm down, the heart's less agitated, the heart itself begins to be a seat of deep contentment. And it's a contentment that we've been looking for and we've been trying to conceive of, we've been trying to plan for, we've been trying to arrange by thinking of the future and trying to make that future happen or struggling with the present. That's one thing that this tradition knows that we don't know in our dominant conventional culture, that there is a deep unqualified well-being that is, comes up from within us when our hearts are not split and agitated and haggard and not confused and chasing all these bubbles. So this retreat is long enough that you'll get tastes of this. You'll get tastes. And if, you're, if you appreciate it, it might actually happen and you might not even know it. That's a strange thing is that we can be so chasing what's uh, grand and what's exciting and what's vivid that you can have these moments wash over you of beautiful, simple contentment, but actually be thinking about something else when they happen. And so there comes time when just breathing, just the miracle of tasting food prepared for you, just feeling sunlight on your skin, the heart that is content with that is a heart that starts to be deeply well. And by being deeply well, it can then look out through your senses and it can go into thinking a little bit more complexly. And if the heart's well, then this capacity to think of the future and think of others is serving the heart. And in its right proportion, thought is actually helpful. Thought or complex knowing is how you take the vibrations coming out of my voice and turn it into English that's helping us have this type of teaching and conversation. So thought is very helpful when it's serving the heart. But when thought is agitating the heart, when thought has dissociated from the heart, then you start seeking. You start seeking and trying to find happiness you can't find because the very mode of thinking and planning and struggling in your mind keeps agitating your heart. And that agitated heart will never know peace. That agitated heart could get everything it ever wanted and be deeply unsatisfied because the heart itself is agitated. So you cannot agitatedly get to a peaceful place. You have to uh, calm your system down. 
You have to know how to soothe your heart, soothe your body, soothe your mind. And luckily that's something you're already doing by feeling your breath, feeling your body, tasting your food, yada, 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 all the things that we are suggesting up here. It took me three or four retreats to recognize that the teachers actually knew what they were talking about. So the first three or four retreats, I was like, I don't know what they're talking about, so I'm gonna spend this retreat thinking. Or the next time I'm gonna spend it walking in nature and contemplating nature and trying to have a deep thought about nature. And then I was like, I'm gonna really get Buddhist psychology and track what they're saying. I'm gonna map it out. So I finally have the map with me. And it's like, yeah, we'd rather you feel your breath. I was like, but you're saying that so that something else happens. It's like, no, we're actually saying that so that's what happens. That you actually taste your food. That you actually, like, how could that go anywhere? That's just breathing. I breathed before. It's like, yeah, but that is actually the revolutionary act. And it's why you feel good after retreats, but why you keep struggling on retreats. You keep trying to do something other than what we're doing here. And it's like, I'm going to trust this a little more each time. And then finally getting to a place where I now really, really believe that being with my breath is the most sacred thing I can do. And everything sacred I do beyond just breathing begins with breathing. And I now feel that. And in feeling that, I have a better sense of what those Quaker women were doing when they got arrested. They weren't thinking their way through that situation. They hadn't planned a script. Their hearts were beautiful. And being beautiful, it didn't matter what happened. They were being arrested by some guard that they'd gotten to know. But radiantly, out through their beautiful hearts, came this unqualified love. And that's what I've seen brood and coming out of this heart through these trainings, why I've grown to trust them, why I love supporting other people in this uh, practice, because it's, you can't find it elsewhere. You can read books about it, but the actual journey is rare. To have these conditions where what you have to do is not try this practice and do your day job, but your whole time here, what you're doing is popping bubbles of thought, learning to rest in what it feels like inside your body when you sit, or what it's like to take a step and then another step, what it's like to actually taste your food bite by bite. I promise you that's actually how things transform. That's not some beginner practice that will tell you later how to really do amazing stuff. That's it. That's actually what well-being is like. That's actually the big prize, is tasting your food, seeing colors through your eyes. But through a healed heart, through a non-agitated heart, through a heart that's actually taken these conditions and learned how to rest, learned how to get out of the habits of perpetual fragmentation and agitation, The first couple of days, we're training against some deeply ingrained habits. But once we have a little momentum, we can then relax and not do so much particular training 
and you can just rest in the flow of what's happening. And in that way, you can actually turn back to thought, and thought is quite innocent. When you have perspective, it's just thought. And so you can sit there, and I call this sort of a, a movie-watching meditation. You imagine yourself with a big pile of popcorn, and you're just breathing, but you're really curious, where is my mind going to go next? I'm with my breath, but I know I will not stay here for long. I've proven that to myself. I, can't, I usually can't stay here for more than a few, so I'm going to do my best, but somewhere between being with these breaths, I will start wandering, and I will wander somewhere. Where am I going to go? And I'm breathing, and it's like, how did they build those pyramids? Like, <laughs> wow, time traveling, trying to understand human history. Okay, back to the breath. Okay, where are we going to go? And it's like, would I be happy if I won the lottery? It's like, okay, lottery fantasy. Okay, let that one go. It's like, eating it. It's like, wow, there's like a black hole, and we just measured. That's super cool. It's like, okay, let that one go. What are we going to do next? And it's like, really mundane things. Like, hey, this wood is chipped here. Okay, that was not that's so interesting. Like, you know, back to it's like, it's going to go somewhere, and it could be fascinating. With the right attitude, it's just thought. It's not thought. It's just thought. It's just your mind producing thought like your mouth produces saliva. It's just what minds do. They produce thought. But you have to have perspective, and that perspective is the world of difference. To be lost in thought or to be aware that you're thinking and to be aware of what you're thinking. And if you can be aware of what you're thinking, you can tell like this thought is bullshit, or this thought is beautiful. And you know that by actually being present when thoughts arise. This thought is old, it's an old tape of hating myself, letting that one go. If I could find the core tape, I'd eject it, but I'm just gonna eject all the little bubbles come out until I get that nasty little one out of there. But there are other thoughts like, uh, I, I, I'm starting to love my family. <laughs> They've been loving all along, but I can actually see the goodness in them. I was like, wow, it's so sweet that before my parents pass, I actually will love them and love them on a level that's really unqualified. I was like, wow, that's, that's not the heart I grew up with. There was more struggle when I was younger. So some of what the heart produces in terms of thought is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And some, if your heart is crabby or it's not in a good mood, it's really distorted. And you have to be able to know that. So for the first couple of days, we're going to train against the capacity to just constantly be lost in thought. So we're going to train towards uh, getting your attention onto real sensory experiences, what it feels like in your body, what light is like when it hits your eye, what the vibrations are like, what's the quality of the sound, not the interpretation of the sound. That takes some training. But in a few days, you'll be able to actually have perspective on thought. And then it's not so scary. It's just activity in the present moment. Sometimes it's a little nasty, it's a little scary, but it's just activity in the moment versus a reality that you are submerged in. There's a very famous uh, teaching that the Buddha gave to this one very impatient, wandering uh, person called Bahia. So this person Bahia, at the time of the Buddha, thought he was fully awakened. 
and it was a fairly innocent mistake because nobody was more awake than he was. And so he looked around and said, I seem to be wiser than everybody around me. Maybe I'm fully awake. Maybe there's nothing more I have to learn. And then he had some elder, he had some family members who passed away and they became deities and they were concerned about him. And so at one point when he was sitting there feeling like he was fully awake, they whispered and they said, you know, you're not even partially awake. You actually have a lot of learning to do. And that was, it shook him. He said, well, what should I do? And he said, you should go seek out the Buddha. So he goes and he travels and he seeks out the Buddha who he finds him when he's doing uh, an alms walk in the morning. And he says, please give me a teaching. I want to be fully awake. I have a sense of urgency. And the Buddha said, I'm going on an alms walk. This is not the time for teaching. So please wait. And he said, I'm, I, I can't wait. I'm so earnest. I really want to fully awake. And they have this back and forth a little bit. And the Buddha actually stops, recognizes his urgency, recognizes his sincerity. And he said this, here in Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sense, the body, will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized, in the realm of thought, will be merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself by here. So same teaching now in this day, get your attention directly to visual experience when you're looking, what it sounds are like when you're hearing. Don't trail off into the stories and perceptions. The second layer is a pattern one of the ways that our minds trail is they get very obsessed with our self-story and we keep inserting ourselves into what we sense. We may talk about that further down the line, but it's another part that we're backing out of is being really uh, self-obsessed, trying to get our story straight. When actually if you pop all those bubbles that are obsessed about your self-story, you find you're actually okay just breathing here. There really is the basis for your own contentment and well-being. You don't have to make it as complicated as the mind does. Not as often, definitely not as often as the mind makes it complicated. You can actually, simplification would help a lot. Because through simplification, you actually can know what's actually happening. Once it gets complex, it's very hard to track. So we have to train in being present and knowing what's happening in the present. And that's mindfulness practice. So without changing your posture, let's just go through a shift from listening, contemplating, sharing information like this, and just turn back towards simple resting. And you can choose, do you wanna rest in visual experience? Look around the room, your mind perceives, but you let go of perception, just visual experience. You wanna close your eyes, feel your alive animal body.
I invite you to aim towards simplicity, aim toward your attention towards direct experience, and let go of a lot of the complications the mind conjures up. It's actually a path to great well-being, and you'll be a better servant to the planet when your heart knows of deeper peace. a half hour for walking and then we'll come back for a last sit. Hopefully uh, you can encourage yourself to come to a last sit. And during the last sit we also tend to do some chanting which is really nice for the collective sense of the day coming to an end, ending it consciously together. So uh, enjoy walking in the night air and a strong encouragement to come back for the last sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.